Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 24. If you don't have a Bible, you should feel free to grab one off the table in the back. As we come to God's word, let's pray together. Our Father, we come again to you to hear from you, to feed on every word that comes from your mouth. And we pray, Father, that this morning as we read your word and hear your word, that you would feed us, that you would feed us by your spirit, that we would open, open our mouths, that we, would, uh, that we would believe what we hear, that you would use that word to transform us, to conform us to the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Again, Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Is it wrong to please people? I think about these verses uh, from the scriptures. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Or Colossians 3.22, where Paul says, uh, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And uh, we could multiply examples, right, of, of places where people-pleasing is put in a negative light in the Bible. But then there are these other verses in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 10 and 11. They go like this. Same Paul. Paul says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says he tries to please everyone in everything he does. And then he says, be imitators of me in this. So there's, a, there, there's clearly a sinful kind of people-pleasing that Paul condemns in Galatians and in Colossians. But it's not always wrong to make it your aim to please people. In fact, Paul says you should. He says, be imitators of me. I make it my aim to please people. You should be an imitator of me in this, he says. And think about it. Is it wrong for a child to want to please his mother? Is it wrong for an employee to seek to please her employer? Is it wrong for a student to seek to please her professor? I would say it's not only not wrong, but it is of the essence of love to seek to please someone. I mean, should not husbands seek to please their wives? Wives? Right? <laughs> Shouldn't friends want to please one another? So why these injunctions against people-pleasing? Well, well, the problem is not pleasing people in and of itself, right? The problem is when people-pleasing rules your heart. Pleasing people is, is not wrong, but when people-pleasing becomes your ultimate motive... You are serving men rather than God. And remember what we just heard Jesus say, no one can serve two masters. Well, Jesus confronts really two sins in, in this passage that we're going to look at, this larger passage in Matthew chapter 6. The one is, is what we've been talking about. It's our sinful tendency to use God to please men. The other is like it. It's our sinful tendency to, to manipulate God to please ourselves. Now, remember where we are. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're, we're looking at what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching, and he has been describing the righteousness that he desires of his people. Last week, we looked at the character of that righteousness. It's internal, not just external. It's sincere and not calculating. It's gracious and not exacting. This week, we're going to look at the motive for that righteousness. Why do you do the religious things that you do? Why do you do the, the, the moral things that you do? Why do you help people when you help people? Why do you pray when you pray? Why do you read your Bible when you read your Bible? Our outline this morning, you can find it in the back of your bulletin. There are four points, uh, pleasing people, manipulating God, correcting our vision, and receiving our reward. Four points, pleasing people, 
manipulating God, correcting our vision, and receiving our reward. Well, Jesus begins in chapter 6, verse 1, saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And this is really kind of a summary statement of what Jesus is going to talk about in the rest of these verses. He's giving us a warning. What's the warning? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Uh, What does Jesus mean by righteousness here? Well, he he really means living uprightly, living morally. Uh, From the examples in the chapter, we see he means something in some ways, close to the word religion, right? Beware of practicing your religion before other people. He's talking about praying. He's talking about fasting. He's talking about giving. And yet, given chapter 5, what we looked at last week, righteousness must mean more than that, right? Because it includes things like refraining from murder and and anger, uh, refraining from adultery and lust and lying. It includes things like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And so by righteousness, this word righteousness, Jesus means uh, religion and morality. He means all of the the good things that you might do. Uh, By righteousness, Jesus means the same thing as uh, the words good works in chapter 5, verse 16. You remember 516? Back there, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Which, of course, that verse forces us to think more deeply about what Jesus means when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. See, these two verses sound virtually the same, 5.16 and 6.1. Except in one, Jesus says, do this. And in the other, Jesus says, beware of doing this. What is he telling us not to do? Well, uh, verse 2 says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In verse 5, he he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And then again in verse 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Well, well, what is wrong with these things that Jesus is talking about? He's talking about giving alms. He's talking about praying. He's talking about fasting. What's, what's the problem? Well, Jesus is saying it's, it's wrong, it's wrong to do these things, these moral things, these religious things, these acts of mercy, right, giving alms. It's wrong to do them in order to be seen by people, in order, according to verse 2, to be praised by them. And notice in each example that people do these things in the most conspicuous place possible, right? They do it in the synagogues, they do it on the street corners, they do it where, where the, wherever people are going to see them do it. And it's interesting because what Jesus is saying is, on the one hand, according to 5.16, we should do our good works so people see them and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We should not do our good works so people see them and give glory to us. And we all know that trap, don't we? When we try to impress people with the words that we use when we're praying in a group. Or, or when we're constantly dropping mention of our Bible reading habits, hoping for the approval of others. 
or, or when we're always trying to mention the, the mission trips that you've been on or the service projects or the people that you've helped or whatever it is, when we're always trying to, to make known the good that we've done to try to impress the people around us. Jesus is saying, beware. Beware. Why? Why beware? Well, because it's a trap, isn't it? It's a trap that we're all liable to fall into. It's easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Right? And the trap is to use our religion, to use our morality in order to please people, in order to make a show, in order to, to, to put on a face to show others how good we are. Right? So we have to always be asking ourselves, why are we, why are we doing the things that we're doing? Why, why, are we, why are you here this morning? Right? Who are you trying to make happy? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, that's, that's one of the problems Jesus addresses in these passages, in these verses, using religion to please men, right? Using this to please people. The other is manipulating God to please ourselves. You know, in verses 2 and 5 and, and 16, Jesus warns us against being like the hypocrites, right? Religious people whose, whose religion is all just a show, who, who practice their religion just to impress people. But then in verse 7, he mentions another group of people. He mentions the Gentiles. Verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. What did the Gentiles think? And probably, of course, some Jews thought this as well. But what did they think? That They thought that the way to get God to hear them was to constantly repeat themselves, right? That, that God is somehow more likely to hear the more words you say. As if you could verbally overwhelm God, right, with your words to get him to do what you want. If I just say enough, then God has to listen. Then he has to answer my prayer, right? And, and so on the one hand, we often misuse religion to try to impress people, right? Look at how great I am. But then we also misuse religion in order to manipulate God. Right? Thinking that by your actions, that by your many words, right, then I can get God to do what I want. I just need to say the right amount of words or the right phrase or something like that, and then God has to listen to me. Well, what do you think? Right? Do, do, you, do you sometimes think that you can get God to do what you want him to do? That you can somehow force his hand, that you can coerce him into listening to you? That maybe if you pray enough, or if you go to church enough, or if you read your Bible enough, that then God owes you, right? Then he has to listen. That if you do enough good deeds, that then maybe God has to be nice to you. You know, here, here's one of the lies of my heart. You know, the, the, uh, when I fast, which is very rarely because I uh, have so little discipline and I hate self-denial, but on the rare occasions when I do, the next day... I almost always overindulge. I, I overeat. Why? Be, because there's this lie in my head that I feel like I deserve it, right? Because I, I denied myself yesterday, so I should be able to indulge myself today, right? I, I should be able to indulge myself. It's a tit-for-tat game with God, right? I did this for God, and now, now, I, now I take a little for myself, right? You see, it, it's a lie, but you can't manipulate God, <laughs> Right? I mean, you, you can't, you can't uh, God doesn't owe you anything, regardless of how much you do, regardless of how much you pray, how many words you say, how often you read your Bible or go to church or whatever. 
Jesus says, your father already knows what you need before you ask. And then he gives this example of a, of a simple, straightforward prayer to be our guide. He says, come requesting like a child, not manipulating like a used car salesman. I'm sorry if there are any used car salesmen here. Right? But you get the point, right? We're not playing, let's make a deal with God. That's not what life is about. That's not what religion is about. Now, the problem in both of these examples, really, is that with the hypocrites and, and with Gentiles, right, uh, both of them are using their religion to try to get what they really want. You see, they're using God to get something else. For the one, it's the praise of people, right? They're trying to look good before men. For the other, it's anything that they might be praying for at the time. Either way, God is just a means to an end for them. And notice how Jesus addresses this in verses 19 to 21, where Jesus begins to correct our vision. Verses 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See what Jesus is saying. There are two kinds of treasure. There's treasure in heaven. There's treasure on earth. Two locations. And the treasure on earth is what Jesus has been talking about. It's the praise of men. Right? Anything in, or anything in this world that you might use your religion to get a hold of. Anything that you might use God to get. That's treasure on earth. Jesus says this treasure, it, it can be lost. Right? It, it moths, eat it, rust consumes it, thieves steal it, reputations fade one way or another, earthly treasure doesn't last. Whatever it is that you're seeking, whatever it is that you're chasing after, it won't last. Well, then the question is, okay, all right, so there's this earthly treasure out there. What, what is the earthly treasure that I'm seeking after? What do I most value in life? What, what gives me the most joy, right? What, what do I smile when I think about, right? Uh, what, what, what do I spend my time or my money or my effort or my energy trying to get? What do the secret thoughts of my heart uh, tell me I'm really valuing, I'm really treasuring? Is it, is it riches or is it reputation or is it having quiet kids or a clean home or the best GPA or the right job? Right? What is it that my heart is chasing after? What earthly treasure am I valuing? What treasures am I trying to store up? Jesus says whatever it is, it won't last. One way or another, the value of that thing will fade. But there's another treasure, Jesus says, a treasure that can't be taken away from you, a treasure in heaven. And to understand the difference between these two treasures, according to Jesus, is the difference between having eyes that work and eyes that don't. And that's the meaning between this, I think, sometimes confusing statement of Jesus in verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. It's what lets light into the body. If your eye is healthy, it lets light in. Your whole body is then full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And what he means is your eye, right? Your eye is the means by which you take in the world around you, right? You look at the world, you see things through your eyes, you take it all in. And if you see the world rightly, 
Jesus is saying, your body will be full of light. If you see the world wrongly, your body will be full of darkness. And so if I look at the world and I think that the treasures on earth, that those are the greatest treasures that there are, if pleasing people is my goal, or if, if the stuff of this life is what I value above all else, Jesus is saying, my mind and my heart will be full of darkness because I'm seeing the world all wrong. But if I look at the world and I think there is a greater treasure than all the trinkets of this life, right? Something more valuable than anything else I can find on earth. Then my mind and my heart will be full of light, right? How do you see the world when you look at it? What do you value? Now, the question for us really becomes, what is this treasure that Jesus is commending? Another way Jesus talks about it, this treasure, is in terms of rewards, Did you notice that throughout the passage? Uh, Jesus, throughout this passage, he says, if you do what you do in order to be seen by people, to receive the praise of people, you have your reward. When people see your good deeds, right, and think well of you, if that's what you wanted, well, that's what you got. If you seek the things of this world, you may get the things of this world, and they can be yours if you seek them. That's your reward. But these are the treasures that moth and rust destroy, right? The the fame doesn't last. People will praise you one day and condemn you the next, and eventually you'll die. And for most of us, right, our names will be lost to history. Why do we spend so much time trying to impress people when it won't last? When Jesus is saying, you have your reward. That's what you wanted. That's what you got. You have your reward. But... Jesus says something else about rewards, something that, that he repeats again and again, something that I think is kind of astonishing. He says it in verse two, uh, 2 through 4, the first time. Uh, verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And then he repeats the same kind of thing in verses 5 and 6. Again, he says, your father, who is in secret, uh, will reward you. And then he repeats essentially the same thing again in verses 16 through 18, where he says, right, your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. There are a couple of things about rewards as we begin to think about this that we should note, right? And the first is this. Jesus is encouraging us to live for this reward. Now, now, we can't really escape this. I've read some people who comment on this passage who try to bend over backwards trying to say that Jesus is not saying that we should seek rewards. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying, right? I mean, he's saying if you live to please men and receive the praise of men, you have your reward. But if you, if you do what you do in secret to be seen by your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And then he says, don't seek treasure on earth, the praise of men, but seek treasure in heaven, the reward that God will give you. So Jesus is motivating us by this reward, And yet lots of us, as as we think about it, as Christians think about rewards, we often get it wrong in a number of different ways, right? I mean, sometimes we just, we don't think God rewards our works at all. 
especially when we have a good, I think, good emphasis on grace, it's sometimes hard to see how, how rewards fit with that. I mean, Jesus clearly says God does reward. In fact, he even is saying that God rewards the righteousness of his children, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, but do it in secret, right? Okay, don't quite get it, but let, let, hold on to it, right? Okay, Jesus is saying God rewards us. Well, the other side of that, right? Sometimes we think, no, God doesn't reward our works. The other side is we think we deserve our rewards, right? If I've done the right thing, uh, I've, I've somehow merited this thing from God. Well, Jesus here says, really, it's the Gentiles who think that way, right? Uh, that, that rewards are something that we are owed by God or something that we've somehow earned, right? That he, he now is our debtor. No, no, that, that, that's not the case at all. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere, uh, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty, Right? So, so, so we're, we're unworthy servants. Even if we do everything that we're supposed to do, we've only done our duty, right? nothing more. And yet God is willing to reward us, Jesus is saying. He's willing to reward us. Uh, Augustine said uh, once that God crowns in us not our deserts, but his own gifts. Okay? God crowns in us not our deserts, but his own gifts. What he means by that is God rewards us not because we've earned anything, properly speaking, but because but, but he's rewarding the good that he worked in us. He's crowning his gifts, right? It's, it's sort of the cherry on top. He, he's the one who has worked this in us, and now the, the reward is, is the, the cherry on top. It's the bow on top of the package, so to speak. There's another way that we get rewards wrong. Sometimes we think, no, God doesn't reward us. Sometimes we think, no, I, he does, and I earned it. Well, neither of those are true. But sometimes we also think of rewards as some material thing, right? We, we look to God in kind of a mercenary way, and we're trying to get material rewards from God. I scratch God's back, he scratches mine kind of thing. If I go to church, he'll answer my prayers for a car or a job or a house or a wife or whatever. But of course, Jesus says in this very passage, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So clearly, the reward he's talking about must be something different. The last way we get this reward wrong, maybe not the last way, one more way that we get this reward wrong, is we think that salvation is the reward Jesus is talking about. Which really brings us, again, back to the question, just what is this reward Jesus keeps talking about? What is he saying? What is the treasure on earth that he wants us to seek? Is it salvation or is it something else? I mean, Jesus tells us the rewards of men. He, he tells us what they are. He mentions the praise of people in verse 2. And then he says, when we do good in secret and our Father who sees in secret rewards us, what is the reward? What is the reward that our Father gives? This is one of those things that actually takes some time to work out, right? Because notice verses 4 and 6 and 18, where Jesus mentions our Father rewarding us, he doesn't mention what the reward will be. And then in verses 19 through 21, when he talks about treasures in heaven, he doesn't mention what the treasure will be. He's, he's seeking, Jesus is seeking to motivate us by rewards, by heavenly treasure. Don't you wonder what that heavenly treasure is? What is he talking about? What is the reward? Well, let me first say what it's not. It's not salvation. It can't be salvation. 
And here's why, right? The the way we are saved from sin's guilt and condemnation is to be declared righteous in God's sight, right? And, and, And Paul explicitly says that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. We are declared righteous and and therefore saved from sin's guilt and condemnation through faith. Paul says elsewhere, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So salvation comes as a result of believing. But there's this interesting verse in, in 1 Corinthians 3 that's instructive here, where Paul, again, says, each one's work will become manifest for the day of judgment, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You see, Paul is teaching in those verses that every Christian's work in this life will be tested. Some will receive a reward, some will not, but all Christians will be saved on that day. See how that works in 1 Corinthians 3? So so this reward that Paul talks about and this reward that Jesus is talking about is not salvation. It's something that, that accompanies salvation, right? Okay, so what is it? Right? That's the question. What, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What is Paul talking about? What is this reward that the Bible is talking about? Well, here's what I think. Turn back to Matthew 5.19. Matthew 5.19 says this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus there talks about two group of people. He mentions two people. Both are in the kingdom, right? There are those who are called least in the kingdom and those who are called great in the kingdom. Those who, who, who keep the law and teach others to do the same, those who follow God's word, right, are called great in the kingdom, Who is calling them great? In the Bible, there's this phenomenon that's sometimes called the divine passive. And it's it's when an action is put in the passive tense and the implied actor is God. So the Beatitudes are good examples of this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who's going to comfort them? Well, the implication is that, that God, God is going to comfort them. Okay? Those who keep the law will be called great in the kingdom. Who is going to call them great? The implication is God. God is going to call them great. Right? The, the worldly treasure, the, the present reward that Jesus is warning against, is living for the praise of men. The heavenly treasure, the divine reward that Jesus is calling us to live for, is the praise of God. In some ways, it's so simple, isn't it? Here's what Jesus is saying. Rather than living to please people, Jesus wants us to live to please our Father in heaven. That's the reward that we should strive for every day. And so Paul says elsewhere, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Or again, he says, we make it our aim to please the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul is saying, we make it our aim to please God. That's our goal. That's our desire. That's our delight. We want to please 
our Father. And, and think about the, the language the Bible uses for God's pleasure in us, which is all over the place. Just think of a couple places. Uh, it begins with God rejoicing before the angels in heaven at our conversion. That's what Luke 15 says. Luke 15 says that God rejoices over our conversion. What it, it's another one of those tricky verses because it says, it says there will be rejoicing before the angels in heaven doesn't say the angels rejoice, which is what we often think, but rejoicing before the angels. So who's the one who's before the angels rejoicing at our conversion? It's our Father. He rejoices at our conversion, right? And then he moves on to delighting. God delights and sings over us throughout our lives. That's what Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 3. God delights in us. And then there's the epithet, right, that, that, that God will express, express his pleasure by saying, well done, good and faithful servant, and then there's being called great in the kingdom, right? Pleasing God is the reward for which we are to long. The praise of men on the one hand, the pleasure of God on the other. What is that for which you live and move and work and sweat and strive? Do you long to please your Father in heaven? Do you long to, to make God happy as it were? Now, the problem with this is, and maybe it's in the back of your mind, the problem with this is, is we, we don't do this, right? I mean, I, I fall short because really, so often, I seek the praise of men, and, and I live for worldly rewards. I, I want other people to like me, right? I mean, I want people to like the way I look, the way I dress, the way I talk, right? To notice my, my goodness, however small it might be, right? I, I want worldly rewards. I want the Father to answer my prayers for an easy life, for pleasure, and for peace. I rarely, if ever, live simply to please the Father. There are a couple things. Again, as we think about this, okay... Where does that leave us? Well, well, think about these couple things. First, while we strive in this life to please the Father, we won't necessarily know when we have done so. Uh, this is actually important, right? We're often conscious more of our own sin than of the good that God is working in us. So you remember the parable of the, the, the sheep and the goats? And uh, the righteous say this uh, to Jesus. He, he commends them and they say, when did we do these things which pleased you? Right? When did we do these things? Jesus commends them. They don't even remember when they did those things. Right? So often we're more conscious of our own sin than we are of actually bringing pleasure to the Father. But second, we should also think about this, that, that even the mere desire to please God is pleasing to him. The mere desire, that even the desire to please him is pleasing to him despite our constant failure to actually do what's right. In fact, Calvin points this out. He says the gospel, in the gospel, in the gospel, the rigorous requirement of the law is relaxed because of the forgiveness we have in Jesus, and the will to obey is pleasing to God instead of perfect obedience. The will to obey, he says. He goes on, he says, in the gospel, God receives with fatherly indulgence what is not absolutely perfect which is an understatement, right? But, but God receives our, our attempts at obedience. Calvin says again, he says, the vices under which believers still labor 
are no obstacle to their partial and imperfect obedience being pleasant to God. See, what what he's getting at, he's saying, because we are in Jesus, God accepts our imperfect efforts and our faltering desires to obey him as if they were perfect obedience. Right? And what he's saying is, as a believer in Christ now, you can please your father. You can please your father as you live for him. Yes, your obedience is imperfect. Yes, you will fail many times. Yes, it's, it's, it's tainted with sin inside and out. But as you take efforts to, to walk in obedience, it's pleasing to your father in heaven. Now, again, even given that, right, we're, we're more conscious of our sin than of Jesus' work in us by his spirit. Uh, God in Christ accepts our desires and, and efforts despite the sin that's mixed in. Given those things, I still live much more for my pleasure than for his. I, I rarely live to please my father. But Jesus did. Right? I mean, Jesus forsook all that the world had to offer and lived to please his Father alone. And yet he was willing to receive the Father's rejection rather than the Father's praise for us. Jesus always did what pleased the Father. He forsook the lure of the pleasures of this world. Even his enemies said that that he didn't care about the opinions of people, we read in the Gospels. And yet he received the punishment of the Father's rejection for our unrighteousness. The father turned his back on his son at the cross. He, he faced ultimate rejection rather than acceptance, rather than praise, right? rather than the reward of the father's pleasure. Jesus received the curse of the father's anger. And he did that so that I could receive the reward of the father's approval for his righteousness. And on one level, of course, that approval is is through my justification, right? Through our being declared righteous by the Father. When we believe in Jesus, we are declared right with the Father. Which means if you're a Christian, the Father loves you, the Father delights in you, no matter what. There's nothing you can do to undo that if you belong to Jesus. And yet on on another level, when we, we can now delight the Father by striving to please him. We will receive his praise even at the final judgment in the words of the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. We will get to hear those words because Jesus is working out his righteousness in us. And so we're told in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so both of these things, the pleasure of God in our justification, in our forgiveness, and the pleasure of God in our sanctification, in our obedience, both of these things come from Jesus and are gifts to us that God would delight in us because of his son Jesus. He gives us his righteousness as our status, which delights our Father. And then he works in us his righteousness in our hearts, which delights the Father. Do you want to please the Father? Is that your heart's desire? Ask God's Spirit to make it so. Look on Jesus, who loved you more than you can imagine. Let your heart be melted by the extravagance of his love shown in the cross. 
He was willing to be rejected that you might be accepted. He was willing to be despised that you might be delighted in. He was willing to receive the Father's wrath that you might bring the Father pleasure. Let your heart be melted by his love until you desire to love him, to please him in return. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the promise, uh, the promise of our heavenly reward. We know that in Jesus uh, we belong to you and you now delight in us, sing over us, rejoice in our salvation. And we thank you for Jesus who is working in us now working in our hearts, making us into new people so that, so that our obedience, our, our faltering obedience, our sin-riddled obedience is actually pleasing to you because of your son Jesus. Father, uh, use that thought to, to move us, to motivate us, to live for you, to give our lives to you, to give our hearts to you, to give our every action to you, to give our minds to you that we would strive to please and delight our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.